Turn with me in your scriptures, please, if you're using a pew Bible, to page 298, to 1 Kings chapter 16. First Kings chapter 16, the end of the chapter, verse 29. We'll read down through the first verse of chapter 17. This is the unerring word of God. First Kings 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, There shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we open this sacred text, we do thank you for the privilege of being in this place that you have by your providence, gifted us to worship in peace. Many places the world over, Christians are forbidden to gather. In many places, their houses of worship have been torn down or destroyed. Father, in many places, they would risk their lives to gather with more than one or two brothers and sisters in Christ. And Here we are today with all of the rights and privileges that we have in our country here, the opportunity to unfold your word. Lord, please do not allow us to take this lightly and do grant that your spirit would open up this portion of your word to us this morning, write it upon our hearts, spirit of the living God who authored these words so long ago. We ask you to author them afresh in our minds and in our hearts. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. 
You've heard it said that desperate times require desperate measures. Well, for the Lord's people, desperate times call for God's measures. The desperate measures that we might dream up may in fact not be at all what God is calling for. Well, this is exactly what we find in our text, that desperate times require God's measures. Desperately wicked and spiritually bankrupt times for God's people require the measures for rescue and renewal that God determines are appropriate. Well, this morning we begin a summer Sunday morning series on the life and ministry of the great prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. Our text is a perfect introduction to this series and whets our appetite for what's to come throughout the next 10 weeks or so. A bit of historical context as we dig into the text. Our time frame is quite literally 874 B.C. This is one of those times when we have enough uh, extra-biblical historical data and historical data from the text itself to pinpoint exactly when and where we are. So think in your mind with me, we're roughly 125 years after the reign of King David over the united monarchy, and we're roughly 125 years before the great prophet Isaiah. But in between those times, this is a time of exceedingly great spiritual declension. There is enormous wickedness in culture at large and in the spiritual leadership of Israel. The once united kingdom under David's rule is now divided into two nations, Judah ruled by a good and godly king Asa, and Israel ruled by a wretch named Ahab. Now here's the general theme to keep in the forefront of your minds this morning. God will always have his voice and his way, no matter how difficult things may seem in the church in culture, and in the nation. God will always have his voice and his way, no matter how difficult and desperate and discouraging the times may be. Now, our text is divided well into two clear headings, the bad news at the end of chapter 16, and the good news in the very first verse of chapter 17. Well, in the first place this morning, I want you to feel the weight of the discouraging and the broken and the evil state of Ahab the king and of God's people under his rule. Feel the weight, the discouragement, the struggle, the wrestling, the wickedness of all that was going on in these years. Ahab's reign is so broadly and deeply evil that it looked as if hope and faith and faithlessness had been snuffed out in the land. For 22 years, King Ahab practiced his wickedness upon the people, and we're told that he won the Olympic gold medal for the performance of evil above all of the leaders that had come before him. He stood atop the podium, the gold medal was placed around his neck, and the anthem was played, you are the most wicked king that has ever existed thus far in the history of God's people. 
Look at the text with me in verse 30. And Ahab, son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, that is, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, more than all who were before him. And now over to verse 33. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. The days were dark. They were discouraging for men and women of faith. They were oppressive. They were full of injustice. Israel's rulers, whether they were governmental rulers or spiritual rulers, had abandoned their godly historical foundations. And it would have felt as if the light of the Lord was being turned out in their day. Ahab, the text tells us, was a uniquely horrible king. Yahweh, the true God, was a covenant-keeping God with his people. But Ahab was a practiced covenant breaker. Look at verse 25 of the prior chapter with me, chapter 16 or 15. Excuse me, chapter 16. His father Omri had been the height of evil. We read of it there, and now he is eclipsed by his son Ahab. He did more to provoke the Lord than all before. Well, what were the elements of his wickedness? Let me give you four things to take note of in the text. First, we're told that he continued to promote the idol worship that had begun back in chapter 12. When the united monarchy was divided and there became two nations, Judah and Israel, Jeroboam, one of the first kings, wanted to enable, quote, the worship of Israel to be easier and more convenient. And so he set up extra temples, he set up extra priestly offices, and he had golden calves made before which the people of Israel could come and bow down. It was a complete corruption of God's true worship. And so we're being told that Ahab continued that practice in his day. Continued Jeroboam's bull worship. The second thing that we notice in verse 31 is the intermarried with a pagan princess named Jezebel from the Sidonian nation. Now that was expressly forbidden Israelites in general, but certainly the kings of Israel themselves. And why would that be the case because they were warned that to marry pagan princesses would mean that their religions and their false gods would be brought into the worship of Israel and corrupt the worship of Israel. And that's exactly what happened. God had warned against it. Third, I want you to notice in verses 31 through 33 that Ahab because of his association with Jezebel, imports Baal and Ashtoreth worship into the worship of Israel. We're told that they served worship, they served Baal and worshipped him, that Ahab erected an altar for Baal inside a temple that he had erected for Baal. So in other words, let me... 
give you a picture of what Baal was doing. You come to worship this morning. You came to an evangelical and reformed Presbyterian church. You assumed that you would hear the gospel. You assumed that you would worship according to God's standards. And so what if this week we had announced that after the 11 o'clock worship was over, tonight during the 6 p.m. evening service, we would come to worship Sophia, the goddess of wisdom. And that we would erect a service around Sophia, a goddess. And we would build a worship service around her honor and her praise. Do you think that would unite our congregation? That's exactly the parallel that we're speaking of. Ahab, in one sense, allowed certain of those within Israel to worship along the lines of what God had prescribed. But he set up alternative gods and alternative worship and alternative liturgies that all of the nation's wickedness could be brought in to the history of Israel. And then those two things were syncretized together and the worship of God was utterly corrupted. And then there's a final historical note. Look with me at something that seems very much out of place in verse 34. In his days, that is the days of Ahab, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. And he rebuilt Jericho at the cost of two of his sons. Now what's going on here? If you think back to the history of the conquest of Israel, when Jericho was defeated, Joshua prophesied that the city should never be rebuilt as a fortified garrison. And that whoever rebuilt that city against God's desire would do so at the death of his son. And so what the author of Kings is doing here is saying that Ahab authorized the rebuilding of Jericho against the commands of God. And Hiel paid the price with the death of two of his sons as he did so. Now what's all of this saying to us at root? That Ahab's reign was one of determined defiance against God's express commands. Determined defiance against the commands of God. Now, I hope you are seeing the connection already. How grievous that we see in our day, in a great many ways, so many so-called churches, and in our culture, and in our elected and unelected officials, many of these very same parallels. Let me read to you a quote from Dr. Ralph Davis, a good friend of our congregation. He writes, this text sobers us with realism. How often God's people assess their times, they find they are facing cultural decadence, vanishing standards, godless governments, and spiritual compromise, and they deduce that things can't get any worse. Listen to Ralph. And they are so wrong. Wickedness can multiply in its decadence. And we see it around us. 
In every nation and in most generations throughout history, there have been approximations of these conditions. And let me exhort us, as believers, we must stop being surprised that this is so. It's one thing to be grieved that it is so. It's another thing to be surprised that it is so. We are warned again and again in the scriptures that this is what we will see in our nations and in our cultures. We're to be students of history and students of redemptive history. And believers have always been called upon to live faithfully with our faces set on the Lord even as we watch our nations and our cultures deteriorate. In other words, the text is saying to us, evil is fundamentally real and it cannot be imagined away. It has devastating consequences. And leaders will be held accountable by the Lord. But evil may become more practiced and more wicked. There's a theological statement that we sometimes say, and that is in the Reformed community where we talk about the depravity of humanity. We speak of total depravity, that every aspect of man's nature is corrupted by sin. But that doesn't mean that we are as bad as we might be. Do you hear the difference? Everything about us is tainted by sin, nothing excluded. But we may become more practiced in our wickedness without the controlling effects of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And some generations and in some cultures, you see that working itself out. But now very practically, do we not as believers sometimes feel this way about our present country and our present culture? How godless, how militantly wicked, how utterly bereft of God's law and God's honor we are in our culture. But let's not fool ourselves. And how we are sometimes this way ourselves, within. So what shall we do? How shall we think? How shall we live? What comforts are there against the despair that that would bring if that were all the news that we had? And, and the despair that the godly people of Ahab's day would have felt. Well, now the good news. Now the good news. Look at verse 17 with me. In the second place this morning, when evil abounds, God's grace and his covenant faithfulness abound all the more, even when we cannot see it, even when it is difficult to perceive, even when we look around and we wonder, shall we ever experience a reviving grace of God? 
We are to be confident in the certain hope of the Lord's presence and his sovereign plans in our midst. Read 17.1 with me again. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, as Yahweh, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, to all outward appearances at the end of chapter 16, verse 34, things in Israel had gone to hell in a handbasket. The Lord's arm was not too short to save. The Lord was never absent. And when God's people least can see his presence and power, we are to rest assured that in those days, he is right there working out all his holy will for his honor and for the good of his people. 17.1 is deeply instructive for us, both theologically and practically. Again, I want you to see four things for our encouragement that, is, that are found in verse 1. First, notice that God has his prophet and he has his prophetic word in the midst of the evil. Now, what's remarkable about 17.1, among other things, is that this is the first word that we hear about Elijah. He bursts on the scene unannounced and unintroduced. We know nothing about Elijah before this hour. There is light in the darkness, though, always to the eye of faith. I want you to hear that again. To the eye of faith, to the eye of the soul, there is always light in the darkness. In this great suddenness, Elijah comes on the scene, and Elijah's name means, My God is Yahweh. Do you hear it? The prophet comes on the scene, and his name is Elijah. When Baal and Ashtoreth and other gods from the nations are being brought into Israel's worship, God sends his messenger. And his messenger's name is my God, is Yahweh. When all seem to be in capitulation to idol worship and the desecration of Yahweh's name and law, God has his messenger in the fray. God always has his voice in, in the midst of the darkness. Always his word and spirit are actively at work even when they are unnoticed and unseen. God's invisible spiritual kingdom is always advancing. Both the redemptive history of the scripture and church history show us this over and over and over again. So God always has his prophet. God always has his prophetic word. Second, Second key to our encouragement is that God's word through the prophet will call out falsehood and idolatry and pronounce discipline and judgments. That God will, by his truth, call out wickedness and he will bring his disciplines and he will bring his judgments to pass. In other words, God's truth in its season will prevail. What's the message that... That Elijah brings, neither dew nor rain except 
at my word. Huh. Interesting message, isn't it? What we hear of the message is not that, oh Ahab, look how corrupt you are. And look what you've done to my people. Well, that's certainly in the message as it were. But the message that is sent is Ahab. There won't be any dew. There won't be any rain. There will therefore be no harvests. There will be economic collapse. And your reign is finished. It's a pronouncement of discipline and judgment. It is a pronouncement that God will humble Ahab and humble the people of Israel. Yahweh will bring on Israel and on Ahab all that he had promised if his people broke covenant with him. Now, it would be easy to miss this if you did not dig into the text a little bit more deeply. You need to understand exactly what's happening as Elijah pronounces this judgment that there'll neither be dew nor rain and therefore no harvests, no uh, fertility in the land. You see, you need to remember that Baal was the male god of fertility and harvest and abundance. Ashtara was the female goddess of fertility and harvest and abundance. And this cultic worship that was brought in to corrupt Israel was associated with heinous sexual activity at those temples in order to, as it were, to imitate what the gods Baal and Astra were about. And so therefore this fertility would spread across the land as they served their gods in this way. And so what is it when Elijah says to Ahab, neither dew nor rain? It's a direct challenge to Baal and to Ashtoreth and the importation of these false gods. And basically Ahab is being told by Elijah, your gods will fail you because they're a figment of your imagination. They mean nothing and they can do nothing. What a beautiful contrast. What a great word from the Lord. And we're exhorted here then to trust the Lord, to trust our covenant-keeping God, even when it looks as if God is not present. We're to put away our trust in false gods and false hopes. God's spoken word is always calling us to a life-giving repentance from the service of our idols back into the service of the one who is the true and the living God. So God always has his prophet. God always has his word through the prophet to bring his judgments, his pronouncements, his truth. And so even in our day, does not God have his faithful churches? Does not God have his faithful ministers? Don't many of you listen to podcasts by faithful men and women week by week? Couldn't you name a half dozen or a dozen of those whom you listen to and whom you admire because they are faithful men and women of God in our culture? 
We have faithful organizations. We have faithful believers in the pews like we have here today. God in his time will throw down these idols of the nations. And God in his time sometimes even throws down whole nations. In order that his name might be hallowed. How many nations do we read about in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, that no longer exist? A third encouragement. Elijah stands before whom? Elijah stands before whose face? Notice Elijah says, as Yahweh lives before whom I stand. Elijah represents the eternal God Whoever lives in his unchangeable goodness, justice, wisdom, power, and truth. There is one eternal God. There is none other. And Elijah knows that he stands before that God and he serves that God. And so he has no fear of Elijah. Let me add this. At this moment. Because we'll read in a chapter or two about his fear of Jezebel in the weakness of his faith. Ronald Wallace, in his book on Elijah and Elisha, says the following. For to see Elijah appear as suddenly as this reminds us that we need not despair when we see great movements of evil achieving spectacular success on the earth. For we may be sure that God in unexpected places has already secretly prepared his counter-movement. God always has his ways of working underground to undermine the stability of evil. God can raise men and women for his service from nowhere. And therefore the situation is never hopeless where God is concerned. Listen to this brilliant phrase. Whenever evil flourishes, it is always a superficial flourish. For at the height of the triumph of evil, God will be there, ready with his man and his movement and his plans to ensure that his own cause will never fail. And where do we see that most beautifully? At the cross. When Satan and Rome and the wickedness of the Jewish rulers of that day had done their best and Christ was hanging on the cross, God was doing his best. And in those moments when it looked as if God were nowhere and the covenant was nothing, look! You and I are here this morning. Look at the fruits of the cross. When evil had done its worst, God was invisibly to the world doing his best. There's a final encouragement in our text. That the Lord uses our prayers to assist in bringing about his holy ends. The reason I had Dean 
read from James chapter 5 this morning is that had we not had James' comment on Elijah, we would never have known some of the backstory to 17 verse 1. And we learn from James that before 17.1 takes place, that, that Elijah had been praying that there would be no rain in the land. We don't know for how long he'd been praying it, but God had moved in his prophet before ever he spoke to Ahab that he would plead with God that that would be the case. Somehow, we don't know exactly how, but God assured his prophet that in fact when he said these words to Ahab, that it would be true, that there would be no rain, not even any dew to germinate a seed. The Holy Spirit moved Elijah to pray the very will of God in God's desire to tear down Ahab. And without the New Testament commentary on this Old Testament scene, we wouldn't know of Elijah's pleading intercession for the day and the hour and the wickedness of his day. Is that not a wonderful encouragement to you and to me in our praying? That God uses our very prayers in the orchestration of his sovereign will. Well, so then there was very bad news and there's very good news. Well, I want us to close with two pointed applications to our lives. And the first is simply, what was the essence of what made Elijah the man that he was? And what makes you and me to be bold and powerful disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, the strength of Elijah's message and his bearing as a prophet comes in these words, as Yahweh lives before whom I stand. This is what put steel in Elijah's spine and caused him to disregard the pomp and the position of Ahab. Elijah bursts on the scene unintroduced to Ahab or to us as readers, and his message is one of drought and famine and economic hardship. What causes a man to go to an ancient Near Eastern king like that, pronounce that message, and know that the chances that he's going to get his head lopped off are 100%? What causes a man to do that? It's simple. It's in verse 17, 1. Chapter 17, verse 1. There is a living God. I stand before his face. And I serve him. Those three things. There's a living God. I'm before his face. Coram Deo. And I serve him. Listen, you who are present this morning, who are believers, wherever believers are in this world, with those three things, you can stand against anyone, anywhere, at any time. That's what made Elijah the man that he is. 
that there's one true and living God, that I live before his face, and that I live to serve him. And that defines everything about me. That same heart commitment is meant to strengthen and ennoble every true believer in Christ. Our life is to consist in the embrace of being in the Lord's presence and knowing that he is the one that we serve. Because after all, that's just the imperfect foretaste of what will be true in the kingdom of heaven, isn't it? That the living God exists, that we live before his face, and that we serve him. That's heaven. What we're called to is heaven on earth. Same thing. Elijah sees by faith the Lord high and lifted up. And so he does not quake before Ahab. And he's able to give the solemn word of God. And when we, walking by faith and fed by the word of the Lord and the Holy Spirit, see God in his exalted beauty and know that we live before his face and that he is the one that we serve, that changes everything for us. Elijah was great because his God was great. The second vital application for us this morning is that you must always read out of the book of God's providence. I want you to hear that image to literally out of the book of God's providence you must read your ever constant need of King Jesus. You and I have a constant need of King Jesus. The need of the Israelites in that day was for a true king. A king of perfect goodness, of justice, of love, of strength, of wisdom, of forgiveness, of righteousness. They needed a good king. And they had the worst of kings. But the good king was coming. He was on his way. And Ahab's wretched evil shouts to us of our need for this good king also. Dr. Bruce Bogus, when he preached recently, said there is an Ahab within all of us and how true it is. You see, when you realize it's not just culture out there, but that it is the culture of your own heart that needs a good king. And you begin to realize how desperately we need this good king. That you need his goodness. That you need his forgiveness. That you need his strength. That you need his never forsaking love. That you need the robe of his righteousness. That you need his undergirding promises. That you need his life-giving spirit. No matter how evil the days become, how destructive, how conflicted the nations and culture become, no matter how daily the agony of your own Ahab-like wickedness within, good King Jesus presently reigns. He presently lives. We live before his face. He is the one we serve. And he will see us through to the end.
Listen to the song that we sung, the refrain. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering as your people. The privilege of delighting in who you are. The privilege of serving the living and true God. Now send us from this place further equipped, further changed, mind and heart more deeply engaged that we would live with a delightful joy in who you are and what you've done. For we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.